If you care to follow along, I'm reading the first paragraph of Mark 2. Where we read, and again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about such things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. It doesn't happen to me very often, but it happened this week. What happens is that for a week or two, I will feel be, that I'm being led toward a certain text and a certain theme for a sermon, and I'll work hard on developing that text and developing that theme. And then as a week comes toward the end, my confidence in all of that becomes more and more tenuous, and I'm not sure at all that that's what God intended. And that's what happened to me this week. That brings on what we know in the trade as preacher's panic. <laughs> and when that happens to me, I find my mind drifting over a number of passages of Scripture, wondering which might be at least permissible in the eyes of God. And there are many passages that come to my mind. It would be impossible to refer to them all, but the 23rd Psalm is one of those. You know, Jesus told a story about a man who found treasure buried in a field. The 23rd Psalm contains complex theology that is just barely hidden beneath the surface of its beautiful poetry, and I love to deal with it. I find myself fascinated by the lofty vision of God that's expressed in the words of the 139th Psalm. Every once in a while, I think about the third chapter of Genesis because I understand that I can't understand myself. And those to whom I minister can't understand yourselves without knowing of this drastic course in the change of human affairs represented by the fall of Adam. And then I read in the second psalm that the poison of Adam's disobedience and failure stains the spirit of every human being, including my own. I have a special affinity for 
passages like the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and the 3rd chapter of Colossians, where I find detailed instructions from the God I long to honor as to how I should live my life and the kind of man I'm supposed to be. I love the story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I enjoy the many lessons that can be derived from his references to the second cheek and the second garment and the second mile. Christ's conversations with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, recorded in consecutive chapters of the Gospel of John, are fertile grounds for personal study and for preaching. And the last chapter of each of the Gospels, with its story of the great triumph of Christ over sin and over death, remind us that he is God and prompt us to rejoice in his grace. But among the many passages of Scripture that I enjoy thinking about as an individual and using as a text for sermons is that paragraph from the second chapter of Mark that I read together just a moment ago. We've considered it before. Let's look at it again. This story, this piece of sacred history is found here in Mark 2, and there's a shorter version of it in the ninth chapter of Matthew. The setting for this event in time is the earliest stages of the public life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And its setting in space is a particular home somewhere in the city of Capernaum, which you may recognize as being the hometown of some of the first men that Jesus called to discipleship, the brothers James and John and the brothers Simon and Andrew. Matthew in his record of this event, says that Jesus returned to his city. And Mark says that he was in the house, this specific language indicating to us that even in this early stage of his ministry, Jesus had found a place in Capernaum where he was welcome, where he was loved, where he was trusted and respected, a place that was a kind of refuge for him and the headquarters for his Galilean ministry. It finds its parallel in the home of Martha and Mary in Bethany, near Jerusalem in Judea. We think about the comfort that Jesus found in these two homes. And it should prompt every one of us to ask, how comfortable is Jesus in the place that I call home? It seems very likely that the setting for this particular miracle was the home of Peter, Mark tells us that when the word spread that Jesus was in town, that many gathered together and that the press of the crowd was so great, it wasn't possible for newcomers to get in to see and to hear. You're aware, I'm sure, that later in his life we find records of large crowds that Jesus met along the way in his life, crowds numbering sometimes in the thousands. This crowd was not like that crowd. Neither Matthew nor Mark estimate the number of people who were present, but it was obviously a large crowd for the facility in which this particular event took place. From this point on, the Lord would draw crowds of people wherever he went. In fact, we find rather obvious hints in the Gospels that there were times when our Lord felt an almost desperate need to be alone or at least alone with his disciples. 
but those movements proved to be few and far between. We remember reading this of Jesus, and we find reason to believe that he delights in those times when we draw close to him, when we seek his company, when we seek his counsel. And those who came to Jesus, I suppose in a sense like some who come to church today, came for many different reasons. For example, people are always fascinated by celebrity. You and I all know someone who at some point in the course of his or her life shook hands with or exchanged words with somebody famous. We know that because they've told us several times. Some were attracted to Jesus simply because of his popularity on the one hand or his notoriety on the other. Others came because of his reputation for being able to heal the sick. Discouraged, desperate, frightened, and frustrated by their condition, they came in some cases across vast distances to put him and his reputation to the test. A few of them were true believers who came back to thank him or sat in his faith, at, at his feet in loving devotion. But most of those who came to receive healing from the hand of Jesus were like nine of the ten lepers, men and women who felt nothing but relief that their burdens had been lifted. But in growing numbers, well into the last week of his life among us as the Son of Man, they came. And even knowing their hearts, Jesus consistently responded to their needs with compassion and with power. Some of those in the crowd on this occasion were almost certainly emissaries of powerful leaders in Jerusalem sent to investigate this most recent threat to their authority. You may remember reading in the first chapter of John that these same men, or men like them, had been sent out to look into the sayings, the teachings, the actions of John the Baptist. When they found him, they asked him questions. They said, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And frustrated by the lack of clarity in John's answers, they finally said, who are you? We need to know that we might be able to give an answer to those who sent us. I suspect that such men as these were present in that crowd in Capernaum because even at this early point, Jesus' reputation was beginning to send ripples across Jewish culture. And of course, there were those in whose hearts were the highways to Zion, people just like you and me who yearned to hear the word of God, who were hungering and thirsting after righteousness, who either desired to be holy or desired to desire to be holy, and Mark reports that to them, Jesus preached the word. While he was interacting with the faithful, teaching them glorious truths about the kingdom of God and answering their questions, there was an interruption. It's likely that the house in which Jesus was preaching was square, was square and had an open courtyard in its center. The roof above was flat, supported by a grid of beams laid atop the walls. 
This grid was then covered by a latticework of slats or branches, which in turn were smeared with a mud like the adobe that's so common in construction in the southwestern part of our country. As Jesus was speaking, chunks of that dried mud and pieces of that latticework began to fall around him. And behind the scenes of all of this was the need of a desperately handicapped man. He was so thoroughly disabled that he had to be carried from place to place, like a beggar by the name of Lazarus. Jesus made the hero of one of his more familiar parables. And one of the great observations of Scripture, and one that is very easy for us to overlook, is a statement made by Mark that this man had several good, persistent friends. In my opinion, that is a marvelous observation that can be made about the character of this man. It's not uncommon for people who suffer to become so engrossed in their own misery that the only song that they sing is, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Their plight becomes the subject of every conversation. Their difficulty becomes their identity in the community. They lose interest in the lives and welfares of others. They demand attention and pity and service. And the effect of their troubles eventually, and their preoccupation with their troubles, is to drive people away from them. But this handicapped, disabled, miserable, paralyzed man had friends, good friends, who not only dropped an occasional coin in his beggar's basket, who not only cared enough about him to sacrifice their own desire to see and to hear Jesus, but went looking for him, picked him up, and carried him to that place where the Lord could be found. And there they refused to be deterred by the press of the crowd, but carried him up onto the roof, worked to make a hole, and then lowered their friend into the presence of Jesus. How blessed our lives are if we have friends like this, and all of us are able to care for ourselves. The antidote for that self-centeredness that is native to the flesh is what we Christians call the new birth. It's that transformation of a person that results from the Holy Spirit coming and making his residence within that person. It's having the image of God once lost in the fall, being gradually restored or remade within us. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that this young man was already a believer, transformed by the grace and power of God. And I would cite the strength of these friendships as evidence of his redeemed condition. The language of Matthew and Mark is the same at this point. Both say that Jesus saw their faith. When we read that, we're inclined to interpret the there as referring to the four friends who brought their friend. I think it has to refer to all five of these men, the paralytic and the four who carried them. They were all men of faith. They were all believers. This means not only that their souls were saved, it also means that their lives, their character, their values were being shaped by the word of God. And this would mean that they had a deep respect for the property of others. And later that week, then, we would have to believe that these same men 
probably with their help of their once paralyzed friends, would be back in that same house, back on that same roof, repairing the damage that they had caused just a few days before. Jesus' first words to the poor man now lying at his feet are startling to read, and they reveal the Lord's priorities regarding human welfare. If you and I saw such a man, his limbs twisted and useful, useless, struck down in the very prime of his life, our great concern, our first concern, would be for his physical condition. We would have a fundraising dinner for him here at the church. We would be flipping the pages of the yellow pages, looking for specialists that might be able to treat his condition. We would do anything and everything in our power to help this man in the hope that some usefulness might be restored to his legs and arms. But we notice, and it's important that we notice, that this was not the first concern of the one that we're learning to call Lord. Jesus' first words to this man could very easily have been, get up, take your bed, go home. But this isn't what Jesus said first. Instead, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your soul is healed, Jesus said. Consider what this means to us. Most of us spend hours every week in front of a mirror, brushing our teeth, combing our hair, removing hair from places we don't want it to be seen, applying makeup and aftershave. We shop for clothes, we have regular physical exams, we exercise, we have our nails done, we get our hair done, we go to tanning salons, we have cosmetic surgery, all because of the high priority that we assign to the flesh. But Jesus is far more concerned about the condition of our souls than the appearance of our flesh. Can you imagine how much sweeter at least in many cases, our lives would be. How much better balanced our priorities would be. How much greater would be our peace and our joy if we spent as much time in devotion, acknowledging our sins, rediscovering the riches of the mercy of God, committing our way to him afresh, searching his word for wisdom and guidance as we now spend in front of our mirrors. There were men in the crowd who were as startled by Jesus' words as we are, but for different reasons. They heard him say, your sins are forgiven. And they scoffed to themselves, who does this character think he is? Only God has the right and the power to forgive sins. And what happens next was as startling to them, for Jesus indicated that he knew what they were thinking. It's not a comforting thought. But it's a truth very consistent with revelations found in Scripture that nothing, absolutely nothing, visible or invisible, is hidden from our God. He not only knows the thoughts of our minds, but he even knows the intents of our hearts. This is the God into whose presence we step and worship. This is the God before whom we kneel in our private prayers. 
What follows in this text is one of many very subtle claims to deity that we find in the records of Jesus' life. They had accused him of blasphemy. They had, a, they had criticized him for taking the place of God in presuming to declare the forgiveness of sins. It would have been an easy thing for Jesus to say, you know, you guys are absolutely right. I didn't mean to assume powers that belong only to God. I only meant to assure this poor fellow that he isn't being punished as a result of his sins. Please excuse me. It's been a long day and I've been very busy. Jesus could have said all that very easily and disarmed the tension in the room. But this isn't what he said. Instead, having challenged his critics, he said to them, in order that you might know that I do have the power on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the man lying at his feet and he said, get up, take your bed and go home. And the man rolled to his feet rolled up his pallet, and went home. Mark tells us that all were amazed, and they said, we've never seen anything like this. You and I would assume, if we were very, very much younger in the understanding of our faith, that because of this great miracle, a miracle that changed the life of a man that most of those in the room knew, or at least knew about, that there would be a great revival in their city, and that many in Capernaum would become believers, and that the majority of its citizens would be those whose names are written down in glory, we would expect that because of this miracle. And if anyone were to challenge that expectation, we might well respond, how could people not believe in Christ after witnessing such a convincing display of his divine power? But to our surprise, Two chapters after Matthew's record of this miracle, he quotes Jesus as saying this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And then he said this, And you... Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. One of the most Astounding and one of the most conspicuous and persuasive of all of Jesus' miracles took place before many witnesses in the city of Capernaum. People found the miracle amazing. They found it curious. They found it hard to explain. But it changed no one's heart toward God. The story is told of a conversation between two members of a gentleman's club in an older section of New York City about a hundred years ago. The walls are paneled with fine, dark wood, the chairs are leather, the furnishings are luxurious, the air is blue with the smoke of good cigars. There the barons of New England society met to rub elbows with their peers and escape the pressures of their demanding lives. There around the turn of the last century, two gentlemen became involved in a discussion 
that became an argument and a test of wills. One was a world-famous game hunter who claimed many of the heads displayed on the walls. The other was a violinist of renown. The hunter claimed that wild animals are nothing but brute beasts, imperious to any sensation higher than their own hunger and are impossible to really tame. The violinist, who was both an optimist and an idealist, insisted that fine music not only comforts the human soul, but can tame the wildest beast. The argument resulted in a rather substantial wager between the two, and soon the musician was on a ship sailing off to distant Africa. He carried with him only a bag of khaki safari clothes, a pith helmet, his Stradivarius violin, and a wooden stool. When his ship made port, he was met by a native guide who placed his few belongings in the back of his land rover, and together they set out for the darkest part of the jungle. There the violinist set up the stool, got out his instrument, took his seat, and began to play. It wasn't long before a silverback gorilla noticed the man and, needing to defend his own territory, charged at him, growling and snarling. But as he got closer, he heard the beautiful music. He slowed to a walk, sat down with his back against a tree, smiled as much as a gorilla is capable of smiling, and went to sleep. Shortly after that, a huge rhinoceros saw the man, turned toward him, pawing the ground, and with great clouds of dust swirling in his wake, rushed at this interloper. But then he too, overwhelmed by the tune being played, slowed, laid down at the musician's feet, enraptured by the serenade, and he too fell asleep. But then an old male lion his mane graying with age, saw the strange figure in his domain crouched low in the brush, sneaking up on his prey, and then leapt forward, knocking the man to the ground. He was about to start his lunch when the gorilla and the rhino, awakened by the noise, rushed to defend their benefactor. And as the day's musician walked away, His safari clothes ripped by the lion's claws, his shattered violin held together only by its dangling strings. The ape and the rhino confronted the lion and demanded to know, why'd you do that? To which the lion replied, huh? With the passage of time, this king of the beasts had lost his hearing and was deaf to the songs that calmed the raging gorilla and lulled the charging rhino to sleep. On another occasion than the one we're looking at, Jesus engaged in conversation with his disciples. He talked with them about the spiritual blindness and the religious deafness of most people, but then he said to them, as the chosen of God, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The problem in Capernaum was that the majority of its citizens didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. So that apart from leaving them amazed and speechless, this great miracle of Christ left them unaffected by the glory that had been revealed before them. But thanks be to God, that is not true of us. 
As the story of ends, we see the crowd parting like the Red Sea before the Hebrews as this once paralyzed man walks gingerly at first as if learning how to all over again and then moves with greater and greater ease and confidence, then trotting, then hopping, then skipping in his excitement and eagerness to show those who waited at home the great thing that God had just done for him. But while the crowd continues to stare at this departing figure in awe and wonder, our gaze is drawn back to Christ. Our eyes open to see him as he is. Our ears eager to hear more of his word. Our hearts and minds bend low before him in gratitude and praise. In our worship today, we've stepped into the throne room of Almighty God. The one whose wisdom is revealed in creation, the one whose power sustains all things, the one who is forever worshipped by angels who say or chant, holy, holy, holy. We come before him at once rejoicing in the great privilege that is ours through Jesus Christ, but increasingly conscious of our unworthiness of that great privilege. With David and Isaiah in the Old Testament, with Peter, Paul, and John in the New, we acknowledge our sin. And perhaps with this paralytic who was healed, we wonder whether the difficulties that we face in life are some kind of divine retribution or punishment for that sin. Here we're reminded of the holiness of our God. Here we're embarrassed by our failure to meet his standards. But here in his presence, may we also be reminded of the greatness of his mercy toward us. And may each of us leave this place this morning as those to whom, in whom Jesus finds faith and as those to whom he has said, your sins are forgiven. Let us pray. Our Father, we consider this miracle of healing a great miracle. It amazes us to read about it. We fail to understand how others would not see its full significance. But as we end our worship today, may we do so recognizing that the greatest miracle that you have performed in the whole history of the world has nothing to do with paralyzed people or deaf people or even dead people but rather making us alive by your Spirit in Christ Jesus. We celebrate that. We praise you for it. We pray, our God, for a deeper and deeper desire to be holy or for the desire to desire to be holy and that our lives might be increasingly pleasing and useful to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.